Welcome to the sixth episode of the Drynet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. In this episode, Dr. Mariam Akhtashusta, senior scientist with the Project Management Agency of the German Aerospace Center, explains the relevance of the Rio Conventions in addressing current crises and how they support appropriate local actions that can enhance the well-being of vulnerable farming communities in the global drylands. This podcast series explores the complex systems that sustain life on the planet and put food on our tables challenges some of our preconceptions and shares insights about how we can do better to leave a positive legacy to future generations. We hope that you enjoy listening. If you find the podcast worthwhile, share the link with your colleagues, friends and family. Well, Marian, thanks so much for joining our podcast. Miriam, you and I have known each other for quite a number of years, and I've got to know you as somebody who comes from a scientific background, but who's always been really passionate about joining the dots, making the connections, linking up with people, whether they be other scientists or people from governments or from civil society. And I think in those roles, you've managed to make quite a big impact in, the, in, in your field. Thank you for having me. For those of you who haven't met you yet, Dr. Mariam Akhtar-Schuster is a senior scientist. She's based at the Project Management Agency of the German Aerospace Center in Berlin, in Germany. She's a geographer who's conducted extensive field research on desertification and land degradation in Northeastern and Southern Africa, and also in Asia and Latin America. Her key expertise includes morphodynamics and biodiversity in semi-arid and arid regions, land use systems with special emphasis on mobile animal husbandry, and science policy communication on DLDD at different UN-related international bodies, such as the UNCCD Science Policy Interface, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, or IPBES, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. She's a co-founder of the International Independent Scientific Network on Desertification, DesertNet, which she co-chaired and chaired over a number of years. And indeed, that's one of the places where I've interfaced with Mariam, um, who has created opportunities for numerous voices to speak in the discourses, whether it be at scientific conferences of the UNCCD or at side events in the course of COPS. So, Mariam, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. Mariam, the, the realization that our planetary resources are finite but are being de degraded by humans has resulted in many multilateral agreements being drawn up in the past 50 years to protect the environment. Of course, most significantly, the Rio conventions that address climate change, biodiversity, and desertification. But I want to ask you, in a world where selfish interests and short-term national political priorities tend to dominate, what do you think is the relevance of these agreements and how can they contribute to the rights sorts of local action being taken? So international laws may not look that effective from the subnational point of view or from the local point of view because these um, international uh, agreements often lack the authority to enforce laws. After all, countries are sovereign states. But these international agreements are important because they provide an arena for governments to jointly address crucial transboundary environmental issues such as climate change, biodiversity, land degradation, desertification, 
um, under commonly agreed uh, procedures of the United Nations. In a globalized world, the well-being of humans um, also at the local level depends on largely on what is happening uh, within the boundaries of a country, but also outside the boundaries of a country. Think about the issue of telecoupling, where what uh, production systems in Latin America are influencing farming systems in Europe, etc. And then also look at the issue of land grabbing, uh, where international investments are entering a country and are also having effects on uh, global, on local population. So the importance of these multilateral agreements is uh, to reflect on these aspects uh, involving lots of governments and uh, and speaking about issues um, at an intergovernmental level. And I would like to underscore again that it's very important that this takes place under UN procedures, which exist at this level, principally because there are many countries who don't directly talk to each other. <laughs> For whatever reason, we don't have to go into that. But who also have to try, who also have to reflect on the same acute environmental issues. And so, this UN arena provides a room, space for finding common grounds, common understanding, a common reasoning for finding solution, etc. And this is really important. And um, although the UN system and the agreements are based on consensus, which means that uh, often there are no spectacular outcomes, especially NGOs uh, criticize this. But at least all countries together who are part of the system agree on a common set of goals, on under common understandings, etc. Uh, at the international level. And uh, countries are not prevented, as an individual country is not prevented from taking on more ambitious uh, goals, not at all. But at least one has a basic common understanding at the intergovernmental level within these international uh, agreement systems. And um, the other thing is, there is no substitute for such global negotiation processes as they currently agree in the uh, UN system. So we should live with them, although they have their, uh, sometimes their critical points, but we don't have any other system in place at the international level to continue talking to each other. And governments are realizing that environmental and social issues are far too big to, to discuss them solely at the uh, national level. The things are in a globalized world are quite interconnected, politically interwoven, and they cannot be tackled purely with national means. So uh, these negotiation processes, which are linked to these international agreements, provide a way of talking to each other and finding common solutions. Indeed. Um, you speak of interconnectedness, and I think more and more people globally are realizing we're all on just one finite planet with a finite set of resources. And yet, so often the national interests do tend to dominate. But part of the problem, I, I guess, would be the, the enormous complexity of global natural systems, the climate, the oceans, life on land. It's all enormously complex. So I wanted to ask you as a scientist, what kind of value do you see in the global assessments such as those carried out in the context of the three Rio conventions? And do you feel that science can lead to effective, coordinated global action? And if so, why should this actually matter to the people of the planet? I would like to 
break down your questions into two groups. Um, first of all, I think one has to highlight the value for the academic arena in working together in developing global assessments at the global level. Um, these are knowledge holders, and it's really important that these knowledge holders um, from different countries, regions of the world, continents of the world, uh, come together. And these global assessments provide um, this arena. The reason being that global assessments are not carried out, for instance, only by scientists from Africa, or only scientists by Europe, etc. They are a joint accomplishment. Um, scientists who, uh, who develop these assessments come from all uh, regions. These global assessments pro provide scientists coming from these different backgrounds the opportunity to network and exchange uh, information. This is really important. And these experts also have to consider issues, environmental issues from an interdisciplinary background. All these assessments, are, the development of these assessments are based on a set of procedures which have been set by the UN system. So you cannot just go and say, oh, I'll just make an assessment with my best friends and hand it in. No, you have to think about carrying out an assessment at an interdisciplinary level with experts who you, you may never have known before. You have to also consider other knowledge forms, for instance, uh, the assessments of the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Service has to consider indigenous and local knowledges in its uh, assessment phases. Even the UNCCD Science Policy Interface looks into traditional forms of knowledge. So, these experts coming from all over the world are forced to take on a holistic approach. For instance, by looking into the issue of land degradation or why pollinator insects are declining because uh, it's very important that they remain due to food security and human well-being. So um, the other thing why it's important uh, that all these experts come together um, by coming together and bringing together all the knowledge which already exists to carry out an assessment, they also can identify existing knowledge gaps. And this helps uh, scientists and uh, policymakers to look into where to uh, provide funds for further research. Um, it is um, well known. It is known, but I would like to emphasize again: these assessments um, don't aren't carried out because the scientist had a good idea of uh, to carry out an assessment on his hobby topic. These assessments are carried out because countries have agreed, governments have agreed that an assessment on a certain topic should be carried out by this science policy body, which uh, works at the international level. So there is a clear demand by policymakers for this information. It is also important, and I think this is an aspect which could also, uh, which needs to be highlighted and which needs to be strengthened, is the issue of also generating possibilities to develop capacities of early career scientists in these uh, assessment processes, in these global assessment processes. The uh, Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem has a fellowship program which enables young scientists to contribute pro bono to the assessments and they are also duly acknowledged in these assessments. The UNCCD Science Policy Interface is thinking about mechanisms to include 
uh, young uh, scientists into its ongoing report systems. So this is all a very good um, situation. In conclusion, these global assessments support global knowledge exchange, capacity building amongst the next generation of academics. This is one category which I think is really, really important. The second aspect I would like to emphasize is that the effective coordination of available science and other knowledge forms is provided in a policy-relevant format to support countries in taking informed uh, decisions. And um, this is, it is very important to know that when these assessments are developed, um, they also uh, develop a summary for policymakers, which is a brief extract of the most important finding emerging out of these over 2,000 pages large assessment reports. And here, these uh, options which are provided uh, by these experts uh, in these summary for policymakers, uh, these uh, options uh, for informed actions are taken and studied very critically by the governments. They go through this policy uh, summary for policymaker line by line, word by word. It, it takes a week to go through these fifty, uh, through these forty pages, and hear every country, etc. Until finally, um, summary for policymakers report is then uh, approved by consensus. And this means that the entire knowledge that is brought together through this assessment and then further, you know, crystallized into a summary for policymakers and then approved line by line by governments brings a strong, um, yeah, a feeling of ownership among governments and a common understanding of what needs to be achieved in the next steps to um, solve a problem. The other thing is that this can also create synergies within um, the, the system because many governments, um, they have spread their, uh, their environmental issues over certain departments. One department is solely responsible for biodiversity, the other only for, for water, the other only for soil. But these um, assessments, which are supposed to be written and developed in an interdisciplinary form, they have a backlash on governments. Government requested for an interdisciplinary report. They get an interdisciplinary report. And now they have to talk to the various departments in their country to, to take on what has been decided at the international level. And this creates uh, synergies within the different sectors of the government uh, and also helps addressing the different conventions which a government has signed to, to rather develop synergistic actions on the ground rather than each department, uh, which is just responsible for one topic, addressing, for instance, just soil. The other one is, uh, is addressing food production and the other one is addressing biodiversity. Then all these departments come together to develop measures which are synergistic and uh, don't create larger trade-offs. And these large global assessments, they provide the tools and they provide the advice on how to uh, take on synergistic actions on the ground. Fascinating. Miriam, I wonder if you could share with us any example of this kind of approach in action and the kind of results that have been achieved, perhaps in your own home country or elsewhere where you've worked or, or had an opportunity to gain an insight into what's being done? 
So, for instance, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem developed the, um, the assessment on pollinators, pollination and food production, which very nicely sees that it's not only about nature conservation, but also about human well-being, because all of us need food to survive. And, uh, and uh, based on the approval of this uh, assessment on pollinators, pollination and food uh, production, um, many governments came together in 2016 and decided to develop a coalition of the willing to uh, enforce uh, uh, actions on, uh, on saving pollinators. The interesting thing was that some governments, including uh, Germany, didn't only uh, include, uh, consider the Ministry of Environment in these uh, discussions in the Coalition of the Willing, but also the Agricultural Ministry. And this is really something very important to point out. So this is uh, one action which, uh, which one could maybe highlight. The other action is probably the sustainable development goals, which are also based on the knowledge coming out of these uh, agreements, uh, international agreements. And uh, we realized that previous uh, international agreements were more focused on a certain topic. Nowadays, these um, agreements, um, any new um, agendas at the international level are far more holistic and inclusive. So if you look at the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and its 17 SDGs, you realize that just about everything is included from land degradation, biodiversity, soil consumption and production patterns, food security, education, gender issue, it's all there. And it's clear that these are extremely interlinked. So the question is, um, how do you get this stark interlinkage? Uh, broke, uh, uh, how do you implement it at the national level? And for this, you, you need a very strong national vision. And this can only happen at the policy level. And your country, for instance, South Africa, has been very strong on this and has uh, used its existing national development uh, strategy and uh, checked on it how it considers how it aligns already with the sustainable development goals and has realized that it is well um, yeah, aligned to the sustainable development goal and is already working together at cross-ministerial level to in implement these SDGs. And um, so these are all very, very positive signals. Maybe another issue where you can see how these international agreements have led to um, an impact is the fact that in 2000, I think it was in 17 in Ordos, China. I think you were there no? <laughs> in, at, the, at the conference of the parties of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification. At this meeting in 2017, the scientific conceptual framework for land degradation neutrality was endorsed by the country parties to this convention. And this conceptual framework was developed by a group of scientists within the science policy interface of the UNCCD. And its endorsement and the, uh, is really important because it shows the government's requested for an assessment, for a study, 
the scientists, the international group of scientists could deliver on time. And based on this conceptual framework for land degradation, countries are now, uh, you know, considering this for building up their target uh, country uh, targets, even your country is using this. Um, I guess. And, um, and this shows how international agreements, how international science can provide the knowledge um, to help countries in moving. The only thing which I see a bit critically is the fact that any use of knowledge which is emerging from these international bodies, it also needs to be implemented. And this implementation means that you, first of all, you need to consider the mainstreaming of information across the different departments in a country, which I think is going on fairly well. According to my research, most countries are addressing the mainstreaming uh, issue across departments in their countries. But the second issue is that you need a very strong coordination force within the country to see that the measures that need to be implemented on the ground actually taking place and that all people should be included in this process of integration. Then, Because at the end of the day, it is the land user who has to work with these decisions, these policy decisions and the implementation measures. He or she have to see how this is broken down on the ground. And this is really, really difficult for a land user to understand why he or she should change any habits, any uh, land use patterns if he or she doesn't know what the background is. So I think that the, most countries are now confronted with the fact that they have these international agreements, they have international knowledge infiltrating into the different um, government bodies. And now uh, the, the challenge is to get it out of, uh, to, to further use this knowledge to develop strategies to implement them. And this can only be done successful from my point of view based on a co-design, co-implementation and uh, co-monitoring uh, the effects together with land users and local decision makers. Otherwise, it will remain ineffective. And I think this is a part of the story which most countries really still are challenged with. I know that your country has developed a mechanism to incorporate um, civil society and business uh, into SDG implementation processes. I know that, for instance, the, Pretoria, the university in Pretoria has developed a platform hub for, um, uh, for communicating with different stakeholders on SDG implementation in the country. Um, these are the processes are there, but they may not yet be strong enough. And um, as I don't live in South Africa, I cannot follow up on this. But this is something that maybe even young scientists would like to look into. Yes, I think it's fascinating to see how this knowledge from all corners of the world has come together into creating these global conceptualizations, insights, understandings, and eventually agreements. And the task of bringing that back down to the ground level is, is a huge one. Um, I think we're all familiar with the notion of thinking globally and acting locally, and it's that local action that's often the missing piece. But uh, you've mentioned South Africa, and I think South Africa is a good example of a country with some uh, strong political commitments and also faced with multiple challenges. And of course, the one thing that limits a lot of this is availability of resources or redirection of resources. How do you, how do you see this as um, informing um, the political processes for national legislation? So these... Um 
countries who uh, most of the countries are in these international agreements. They are part of the system. When an assessment after very critical review by each country is finally adopted and its summary for policymakers is finally approved, all countries are part of this system. And they have to, um, and they, uh, to a certain extent, uh, by approving a document and agreeing on a document with all its critical results, are forced with the challenge that they have to somehow commit themselves to implementing it at, in their governments. And as I had pointed out earlier, it's really important that each country checks on its uh, existing national visions and strategic plans and tries to incorporate these um, aspects into uh, national policymaking processes. The challenge is that every country is a sovereign state. There is no way from the outside to tell a country you have to do this or that. This would be an intervention which is not acceptable. And in the UN arena, this is really um, very clearly the case. And uh, if you read these documents, you will realize that they're all written in a policy relevant, but never in a policy prescriptive language. This really needs to be taken into account. Countries, after they have approved this document, can take it home and can use it in their national visions for a sustainable future. Um, but nobody can force them. The only people who can force a country to take more drastic steps or concrete steps based on these reports, it's the population of a country, the citizens of a country. Maybe a reason why it is also so important that besides countries being part in these plenaries where countries look into these reports, discuss these reports and finally agree on a version, that in these meetings in the back room, you have all these very dedicated NGOs and scientists sitting up there yeah, who are watching the negotiation process. And these people, these uh, scientists, these members of diverse NGOs um, have the power to spread the news in their country. The media is often very alert. These are the people who can really bring change, as, for instance, uh, something that we experienced in Germany when it came to the insect um, decline issue, where Germany took very concrete steps. So basically, just writing the report and uh, having a, a government agree on it may only provide the frame for discussing some policies at the national department level, at the sectoral level, but it needs more force. And this force can only evolve if there's commitment in the population to, to see that change happens. In other words, these reports do not create a comfort zone. It's not a very cozy area. It, it leads to more challenges because you're really asked to become active. Marim, I wonder if you could share with us a bit more about the concrete steps that were taken in Germany to address the problem of pollinate, pollinator decline. Yeah, so uh, Germany has a long monitoring history, uh, which, is, which is really important, I think, if you want to bring along change, irrespective on what aspect, you cannot do it emotionally. You need science and you need other knowledge forms to support um, any sort of um, environmental um, options you want to provide for change. And in Germany, for the last 30 years, there has been a long-term scientific monitoring, which has shown that um, 
that the country has already lost a high, high amount of its uh, insects. More than, for instance, half the population of wild bees is either endangered or already has gone extinct. Um, it's the so-called Krefeld study, which is quite internationally renowned. It has some negative aspects to it, but generally it provides long-term monitoring um, um, long-term monitoring results, which are a very sound footing to take uh, steps in, in the country. And um, the thing is that many people think, oh, well, if we don't have so many insects, then we can have a very nice insect-free barbecues, for instance, in the evenings, you know. And, and, and this is really dangerous because insects are not just uh, troublemakers. They, they, they are really very important for the food we eat and the diversity of food we eat. If you look at the amount of pollinator insects, which have also declined. And the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services clearly brought it to, to, to the government uh, of its 100 and I don't know now it's 136 government countries saying that more than three quarters of leading types of food crops rely to some extent on animal pollination. I mean, this is really a very serious situation. And, and Germany also realized the results of this uh, assessment, of this global assessment, um, it's very important to point out that the media was very strong on this. The, the scientific uh, reasoning was very strong on this. And civil society was also very, became very aware and uh, became very strong on this issue. And based on all this, Germany in 2019, so I, actually just a year ago in September 2019, adopted an action program in insect protection um, which is really a, a very, very important step, yeah. And um, at the same, and this is a, a federal law, no? this uh, insect pr uh, program, a uh, protection program. That's uh, at the level of the government in Germany. But the federal states in Germany can also take their own actions and be, be even stronger, make a stronger case. And this was the case in Bavaria, in the state of Bavaria, which is usually just known for its football. And now again, yesterday, Germany won in Paris, you know, and, and beer and Oktoberfest and so on. But uh, the state of Bavaria is also extremely well known for its very strong um, ecological movements. And in, uh, early 2009, in early 2019, they brought, um, they started off a, a petition um, and gathered, I think, 1.7 million um signatures within just two weeks. And, uh, and this petition outlined three major aspects that need to be changed in the state of Bavaria. And one was that a certain part of the land should uh, be farmed organically. Currently, it's 10%. And in a stepwise approach by 2030, this number should rise to 30%. Um, second, that farmers should be more responsible for changing their farms to uh, more bee-friendly uh, use. This would mean the creation of uh, non-farmed meadows, etc. 
And the third aspect was that farmers' uh, environmental compliance should be made compulsory, which is currently in that not that strong. The high number of signatures based on the scientific information provided by national long-term monitoring systems complemented by these international global assessments and their agreements by many, many governments. Um, this led to the fact that the petition had such a high number of signatures that um, state premier who's leading Bavaria announced that this, that the result of the put, uh, petition would be written into law. Yeah, it would not even, uh, it would uh, rather than putting it to a referendum. Yeah. And, and this, is, this has been a real success story. And I think another aspect which led to this success story is, and I think this is very important. It's not only the good scientific backing, um, the international assessments and agreements, and the civil, strong civil society. I think the fourth success uh, was that um, the uh, Bavaria state premier said it's uh, that the farmers will be provided with some support so that they can ensure, so that this transformation can take place. And this is really important because it's not about either biodiversity conservation or land use. It's about biodiversity conservation and transformative sustainable land management and uh, sustainable farming mechanisms. And this has to come together. And um, this is another reason for looking into these international agreements and into these global assessment reports. They always voice the concerns of all sides before developing options. You know, in the pollination assessment, it was not only uh, um, scientists from universities who attend, who were in these um, expert, who were in this expert group. But it was also, uh, uh, yeah, from the private sector, from the industry, one or two uh, participants, yeah, from big companies who also have scientists. And this shows that all these different voices had to be heard and a consensus had to be found. And, um, and these uh, global assessment reports make a strong case on it. You cannot just marginalize somebody and, and, and say, well, they are part of the problem. That's why we don't need them. We have to solve this on our own. The thing is, if we humans cause these problems, uh, environmental damage, etc., we are also part of the solution. Actually, we are the solution. Yeah. And that's why... Um, it's important to hear everybody and to include everybody because we will be needing everybody. And with everybody, I certainly, and I'm making a very strong case on this, I certainly also mean women who are often marginalized in these uh, processes at the local level when it comes to implementation and decision making. And, um, and my case has been made stronger by the recent pandemic, by the pandemic which we are going through because uh, if you look at a recent study which was published, it showed that those countries who have female leaders were far more uh, caring, had far more caring concepts um, which they implemented uh, in their countries to, to somehow absorb this uh, pandemic um, than other countries. Yeah. 
showing, and, and I'm not saying that women are the better humans, and I wouldn't dare say so because I know that you, <laughs> you don't belong in that group. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, women are educated usually right from the beginning to take a more uh, caring concept approach in solving problems and in cooperating. And this needs to become mainstream, uh, not, at the gov not only in the governmental level, but in all decision-making processes right down to the local level. Mariam, thank you so much. Um, much of what you've said is, is provocative, inspiring, and uh, at, at base quite profoundly hopeful. But I wondered if you would like to close with a message for young scientists who might be listening to this podcast. We've seen what a key role science is playing in moving forward the global debate and making people more aware of what's happening to our planetary systems. So what can a young, young scientist um, hope to contribute in the future? Over to you. So first, maybe of all, one of the really big messages is, and I think I already reflected on that a bit, is that we are not, we as humans, we are not just a bunch of selfish and destructive actors on this planet. Because we also have the possibility to use ideas and our creativity to change our own lives, our own behavior. I think this is really important. And levels for this change in our own personal life could be the way we consume. Yeah, Use energy, low transport system, buy clothes from which have an ethical production system. Uh, how do we and what food do we eat? This is all really important. And there's enough literature out there to, to, to get informed about uh, the right way. Yeah. And if we start changing our consumption systems and, and basically it's our desires, it's our needs, which need to change, um, uh, which need to change in order to also impact on environmental standards. And market forces will have to respond to this at some time because consumers are becoming more and more critical. And I see especially the younger generation very critical in, in how in consumption patterns which currently exist and so on. So this is really important. And I think the other uh, issue is that um, scientists, young, early career scientists should get involved in these international processes. I had already indicated that some of these international science policy processes also provide opportunities for early career scientists to get involved pro bono, but still they have the possibility to get involved and and get in contact, get networked, get the ideas from other countries, from other regions, etc., um, this is not only important for the individual uh, career, but it can also inspire the whole education system, the communities in one's own country. I think this is also uh, very important. And then many might say, oh, yeah, I'm just a small student. I can't change anything. And um, I would just like to contradict by pointing out to a quote which I, which I just found recently. In fact, it was just a few days ago and by chance. And this quote from 1997 says, um, if you think you're too small to make a difference, try to sleep with a mosquito in the room. And I think students should realize that they have 
they have the possibility to irritate existing systems uh, and to make and to help make change happen. And um, yeah, and this is uh, something they should be very aware of. They are, after all, our, the, those who will take decisions in future. And they already now have the possibility to engage with experts and to start making changes. Well, Marion, thank you so much. Thank you, Noel, for this opportunity to yeah, express ideas and to yeah, and look forward to remaining in contact with you and your group. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DryNet podcast series, Good Food for a Better Normal. We hope that you found the inspiration to reinvent the ways in which we care for the land and produce, distribute and consume food. This podcast series is brought to you by DryNet. DryNet is a network of civil society organizations on four continents that work with local dryland communities to support their endeavors to use land-based resources in the most sustainable way possible. The network and its members promote the concerns of land-based communities in national and international discourse on environmental governance. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share the link with your colleagues, friends and family.